Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 37, which is the psalm that I read to you earlier. I'm going to be using the NIV, which is very similar, but slightly different as you'll notice. So, how to get everything you want in 2023. A couple of years ago, during the pandemic, uh, Malcolm Corden, uh, sorry, yeah, there was a, uh, what's his name, James Corden, the comedian, he was on TV, I don't know if you know who he is, Uh, he's a comedian, a British comedian, and he runs a late night talk show in America, Uh, and on his late night talk show, he was talking about the fact that just before, in the previous week, Donald Trump, you may remember this, had done a photo opportunity by going across the, the, the street from the White House in front of a church where he held up a Bible for the f- sake of photos to show what a great man he is or something like that. Some journalists said that he held up the Bible like a severed head. <laughs> Now, James Corden thought he'd have a bit of fun with this, uh, and he invited his father onto the show and interviewed him on Zoom. Now, his father, it turns out, after being a, an RAF bandsman most of his life, is now a Bible salesman. Goes door-to-door selling Bibles in Yorkshire, I think it is. Um, and he asked his, his dad, he said, Dad, how are you supposed to hold the Bible? And his dad went along with him and said, well, there's different ways you can hold it. He said, you can hold it like a pizza box <laughs> and various other ways to hold it. But he said, you shouldn't just be holding a Bible, you should be reading the Bible. Can I read a section to you? So James says, oh, of course, Dad, yeah, of course. So then he read from the Bible. Now, I wonder if you got the opportunity to read the Bible on national TV to millions of people, what passage you would choose. I was fascinated that he chose this passage, Psalm 37, and he read the first eight verses. We won't read it all right now, we just read it earlier, but the first eight verses is what he read here. I went to bed that night and I was thinking, and I woke up during the night thinking, yeah, that is a great passage. I'm not sure I would have chosen that, but it's a great passage. And I started thinking about what he had read there on that I saw the video of that, uh, of that late night talk show. So, and it was a wonderful, clear, unpretentious reading of the Bible. Uh, and it was so encouraging to see somebody read the Bible on national TV in America, uh, that was. So I, I thought, I want to preach on this passage. I don't want to preach on this psalm. And in particular, I want to preach on verse 4. And so I set myself to try to understand what this psalm is about. And that's what I want to share with you this evening. And out of this, I hope you'll be able to see how you can get everything you want in this new year. So, you may notice, if you've got a modern translation, you may have a little note at the bottom to say that this psalm is an acrostic poem. That is, each stanza, which is usually two verses, in the Hebrew language, In that stanza, all the lines start with the same letter. So if it was an English, if it was originally an English poem, the first stanza would have every line starting with A, and the second stanza would have every every line starting with B, and so on. In Hebrew, they have different letters. 
But that's what this acrostic, that, that's what this psalm is. It's an acrostic poem. Now that might, be, that might come in handy for us to know later on. But have you noticed in these first eight verses especially, it's packed with instructions. Let me read some of them to you. Verse 1, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Verse 4, take delight in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret. Verse 8, refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. Loads of instructions, commands to God's people. And it goes on. There are others uh, in the rest of the psalm. Verse 27, turn from evil and do good. Verse 34, hope in the Lord and keep his way. Verse 37, consider the blameless, observe the upright. So there are loads of instructions here, commands to the people of God about how David, with the inspiration of the Spirit, wants God's people to live. So these exhortations, these commands, dominate the first eight verses. David then recognises the situation in which God's people often find themselves. Sometimes things don't seem to go well for us. We certainly know what it's like, don't we, when things don't go well. We go through trials, we go through troubles and difficulties. That's why David says, don't fret. You see that three times. Verse 1, do not fret, or fret not. Verse 7, fret not. Verse 8, fret not. Three times, don't fret, don't get anxious and don't get worried Stop worrying, he's saying. Now that's important for God's people to have that kind of exhortation because we all tend to do that. What else, what other instructions does he get? Don't try to get your own back, he says in verse uh, 8. Refrain from anger. Don't try to get your own back. Uh, And verse 3 trust in the Lord. That's another exhortation. We need these exhortations. Why is it? It's not because we don't know it already. It's because we tend to forget. And so we need that encouragement. We need to be encouraged and exhorted uh, uh, frequently because we forget easily that that these things are true. They should be true of us. So do you allow the Holy Spirit to exhort you regularly? He wants to do that. He wants to exhort you as a believer if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will do that through his word. So when we read the word of God, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and he exhorts us. He encourages us. He urges us. He challenges us. We need that uh, from the the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. And he does that when we gather together on a Sunday as well. We don't just gather together on a Sunday to go through some kind of ritual. We do it because the Holy Spirit can exhort us and encourage us and help us on our way as disciples of Jesus. Now, but did you notice that after verse 8, there is a long gap with no exhortations, no instructions, no encouragement to God's people until we come to verse uh, 27. So there's a big gap. What's going on here in these verses from verse 9 to verse 26? 
David is painting uh, a picture here of two different kinds of people. They are the righteous and the wicked. See that in verse 10 and 11. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Or, um, and let's find another one. Um, verses ten, uh, 18 and 19. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But, verse 20, the wicked will perish. Verse 21, the wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. So, there is this contrast he's setting up here between two different kinds of people. There are righteous people and there are wicked people. There are, if you like, goodies and baddies. That's what David is saying. Two different kinds of people, and God works or with the, such people in different ways. You notice that there is this word but frequently right through these verses. It's because he's contrasting these two different groups of people. And the reason David is doing that here is because he's giving reasons for the instructions he's just given. He's given all these exhortations in those first eight verses. And now he's giving reasons for those exhortations. You need to live like this because there are righteous and there are wicked. And different things happen to each of those groups. So, that leads us then, it will leave sensitive readers to think of two questions. Two questions come up in your mind as you read a psalm like this. And the first question is this. Is the life of the righteous really so blessed? Is David being serious in verses 25 and 26? I was young and now I'm old. Yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Is that, is that the case, really? Do the righteous always have enough to eat? Does that mean in the famine that's going on in Somalia right now, there are no righteous people there? Does it mean then that if bad things happen to me, I'm not one of the righteous? Maybe it means I'm one of the wicked. Does it mean that I need to do something else to receive the blessing of God? Now, these kind of questions come up. And if it ever comes up to your mind, don't worry, because it comes up to any sensitive reader of this psalm. How can this be the case? So that's one question that comes up to our minds. And the second question is this. Why should we trust in the Lord and do good when we see so many people around us are not doing that, and they seem to be getting away with it. Life is hard. Why should I wait patiently for God to act when other people take matters in their own hands and seem to get away with it? So two questions that come to our minds when we read a psalm like this. And I want to deal with each of them in turn before going back to look at verse 4, which is I want to, want to focus on later. So, firstly, the first question. How can David say with such directness that the righteous will always enjoy a good life? Does it mean that if I face a calamity, it's my fault? 
Now, it's important to get this sorted out in our minds because if we don't, we will find ourselves live, living either in despair or in unreality. You know what I mean by despair? Despair is when we feel like we just can't carry on. We just give, want to give up. It leads us to have stunted spiritual growth. It's like having lead in your water, which means that you can't grow up properly. You stop trying to grow in holiness because it doesn't seem to be worth it. It's just too hard. That's despair, but also it can lead to, un lead to unreality. Unreality is when it is also unhealthy. You live a life of make-believe, convincing yourself that all is well when it actually isn't. Because if you face up to the fact that things are tough, then you're forced to reckon with something in your life causing that problem. If you think bad things happen to bad people and bad things happen to me, but I hope I'm not a bad person. I'm going to pretend that no bad thing has happened to me and everything's perfectly happy when I'm not really. And that's unreality. I remember listening to a, uh, an interview years ago with a man called Norman Vincent Peale. He was a, an old preacher, a liberal preacher in America. Uh, and he was in his 80s when he was being interviewed on the radio. Uh, now, Norman Vincent Peale wrote a book called, just slipped my mind. Can you remember what it's called? Um, oh. The Power of Positive Thinking. That's it, The Power of Positive Thinking. He said, if you want to live a fulfilled and happy life, all you need to do is think positive thoughts, right? Now, in his 80s, he's being interviewed, and the interviewer asks him, how are you feeling today, Mr. Peel? And he said, I've never felt better in all my life. Now, that's pretty unlikely, isn't it, for an 80-plus-year-old man. I think he was living in unreality. And, and that, that can be the case for us if we think that bad things only happen to bad people, and I'm not bad, so that bad thing actually isn't a bad thing. We're living in unreality. We're trying to trick ourselves into thinking that things are okay when they're not. Now, how do we understand these verses then in the Bible? Because the way we understand it, if we can understand it, it will help us to answer those questions. So in the Bible, we have Proverbs. Now, we have a whole book of Proverbs, don't we, after the Psalms. But not just in the Proverbs, we have Proverbs throughout the Bible and including in the Psalms. We have lots of Proverbs in the Psalms. Now, you know what a, a proverb is? We have Proverbs in English. For example, one good turn deserves another. Or another one, a stitch in time saves nine. Right? That, have you heard those Proverbs? What about this one? The early bird catches the worm. That's another one, isn't it? Now, let me tell you a story. And then you tell me whether that proverb is true or not. The early bird catches the worm. When I was a teenager, I was in the Scouts. Uh, and I'd just joined the Scouts, so I must have been 11 at that point. And me and my friend Rob, uh, we, started jo we, we joined the Scouts. And that evening, uh, we arrived at the Scout hut. And the Scout leader, when we were all ready, we were all there, about 20 of us. He said, we've hidden a bar of chocolate in the hedge. Uh, and you have to run down around the block and come back, and then you can find the chocolate 
in the hedge. Whoever finds it can eat it. So uh, he said, ready, say, go. And everybody ran out of the hut, across the field, down the lane, around the road, and then up the hill, and then back down through the cemetery, and then back down the lane and into the field where the scout hut was, where the hedge was on the left. Now, I was younger than all the others, and also I was not a good runner. My hope was not just to get the chocolate. I didn't think I would get the chocolate at all. My hope was that I would get back to the scout hut before the meeting ended. Uh, but indeed, me and Rob, uh, we were right at the back, uh, and we arrived at the school, at the um, scout hut uh, field, after everybody else. And we arrived there, and to our astonishment, everybody was still searching the hedge for the chocolate. We thought they'd easily have got the chocolate and probably finished it by the time we got there, but they were still looking for it. So we thought, wow, let's have a look. And within seconds, I found the chocolate in the hedge. I shared it with Rob. I was a good boy. <laughs> now, the proverb is the early bird catches the worm, right? What does that mean? That means the person who gets there first is going to get the chocolate, right? Well, that's a proverb. So, but in this case, it was the person who was last got the chocolate. So does the proverb, does that mean that the proverb is wrong? No. Why? Because a proverb, the way we understand a proverb is this. This is what usually happens. And it's true, isn't it? It's true that usually the kids who are first at the hedge will find the chocolate, not the kid who's last. That's what a proverb is. It's this is what usually happens. It's a general saying. And in the Bible, we have lots of proverbs like that. Now, that helps us to understand these verses in Psalm 37. Many of these verses, then, are proverbs. They're statements of generality. This is the way things usually happen. David is not saying that the righteous never have trouble. But what he is saying is this. Generally, people reap what they sow. So, keep that in mind. That's really important for us to understand. Many of the verses in Scripture need to be understood like that. Now, the second question, you can remember what the second question is. Why should we trust in the Lord and do good when we see so many people around us not doing so and they seem to be getting away with it? What's the answer to that? The answer to that is, of course, is that what we see is not all that there is. Appearances are deceptive. Can you imagine shopping online? Many of you have done shopping online for the last few years, especially during the pandemic. You shop online, you find the thing that you want. Maybe it's something for your mother for Christmas. Uh, and you find this, uh, this thing, maybe it's some notepaper, nice notepaper. Uh, and, uh, and it comes in the, in the post and you open it up and you think, oh no, that's not what it looked like on the computer at all. And so you wrap it up and you send it back and you get a refund. Well, appearances can be deceptive, can't they? And that's what David says life is like. We may think that the wicked have it all and that they get away with it, but they don't. Have a look in verse, at verses 35, 36. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. 
but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. David then is contrasting the life of the righteous with the life of the wicked. But, now notice I said that there are lots of these contrasts between verses 9 and, uh, and up to verse 26. But then verse 27, after that big gap in which there are no exhortations, just these proverbs, in verse 27 he comes back to an exhortation. He says this, Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Now David then is, is, has turned a corner in this psalm and he's saying, yes, there are righteous and there are wicked. There are righteous and there are wicked. There are two groups. But now he's addressing the righteous and he's saying, turn from evil. The righteous. You righteous people, turn from evil. So you say, well, I thought the wicked were the ones who were evil, not the righteous ones. Indeed, that's true. And yet, David can say, you righteous ones, you also turn from evil and do good. Why is that? David, up to now, has set up this bipolar world, the righteous and the wicked. But the world isn't as black and white as we tend to think it is. You know, there was a famous person called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He won a Nobel Prize, I think, a Nobel Peace Prize. And he said this, the, um, the, the line separating good and evil runs down the heart of every man. And that's true, isn't it? That's because we all have sinned, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means that even if we are saved... That means there is still this tendency in our lives to do wrong, to do sin, to do evil. So David knows his own heart too. He knows that he has a tendency to do what is wrong also. And so he, he commands, he exhorts his people here to turn from evil and do good. So, do you live that sort of life? Are you always thinking that you're on the side of the good, that other people deserve what's coming to you, to them, but not you? In fact, they may think they are one of the righteous ones, when in fact they are one of the wicked. Or well, you, you may think that. What will happen to us if we live a life of repentance like this? If we turn from evil and do good? The climax of the psalm is at the end, verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. They take refuge in him. What does that mean? Have you noticed, as I've read the psalm, that many times David talks about inheriting the land? You can see in verse 9, for example... Those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek will inherit the land. Verse 22, those the Lord blesses will inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. 
verse 34. I will exhort you to inherit the land. Five times in this psalm, David has talked about inheriting the land. What land is David talking about? And why is it so significant? He is, of course, talking about the land of Israel, the promised land, the land that God had given the people of Israel to live in where they can be in his place, under his rule, and living for him with his uh, protection and with his grace and kindness. And that promised land is a figure of salvation, of deliverance. These people can be delivered from their enemies by living in this promised land. Their enjoyment of that land and all the blessings, though, is dependent on their obedience. And time and again, the people of Israel disobeyed and rebelled against their God. You can remember those stories, can't you? (coughs) Ultimately, the people of Israel, because of their rebellion, are taken into exile by a foreign power and taken far away to Babylon, where they stay for years outside the promised land. Now, after many years then, some of them do indeed get to return to the land, but it's never quite the same, is it? It's never quite the same because they don't have their own king, They don't have their own rulers. They're living under the rule of foreign powers. And yet, in the fullness of time, something happened. God sent his own son to be the king, the Messiah, the one with authority to rule his people. And that Lord, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, so many years later then, was born and grew up. And that Lord, when he started preaching and teaching, he started also uh, healing people, raising people from the dead, and teaching his disciples. And do you remember one of the things that he said? He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the world. Not just the land, they will inherit the earth. How? How? Because salvation is not just for the people of Israel. In fact, it's for all the people of the world. All the peoples of the world can come and, and come under the lordship of Christ. God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom would stretch over the whole earth. So David, looking ahead to what was to come, could say, the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. Verse 39. He himself, not the land, would be their stronghold in time of trouble. They could be saved by taking refuge in him. So David ultimately here is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. People can have refuge, salvation, deliverance, rescue by putting their trust in the Messiah who was to come. So that's the context of the psalm. Generally, that's what the psalm is about. But I want us to go back to verse 4 and just take a few minutes to have a look at that one verse in the light of what we just learned about in the psalm as a whole. Let me read it again. Verse 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, at first sight, it looks like David is giving us a proverb, just like in much of the rest of the psalm. A proverb proverb of generality. 
take delight in the Lord, and usually, or generally, he'll give you the desires of your heart. But I don't think that is the way that we're supposed to understand this verse. And let me try to explain that to you. Verse 4 and verse 3 belong to a one stanza. That's one couplet that goes together. So let's read verse 4 and verse 3 together. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 4 is not giving anything new. It's an intensified form of what David is saying in verse 3. The focus, though, is on enjoying the Lord. David is, in, is urging his hearers to take delight in the Lord. Now think about who the Lord is and what he's done. The wonderful works of creation and the wonderful work of redemption in sending his son Jesus. Do you delight in God? Do you delight in the Lord? When you come to church, is it a delight to you to sing his praises and to pray and to be among God's people so that you can uh, have, be happy in knowing that you are saved and that God is so great and wonderful? Can you say with the hymn writer, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast? Can you identify with the words that Peter wrote to, uh, in his first letter when he wrote this to his friends there? Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That should be the case for all God's people. Is that ex your experience? If it is not, David is saying, you're missing out. One of our chief problems as modern people is that we're surrounded by so many things that give us pleasure, we're numbed to the one thing that really matters, delighting in the Lord. I suggest this, that delighting in the Lord is the central quest of our existence, the focal point of a life worth living. Notice the word David uses for God, the Lord, the covenant Lord. What is the covenant Lord like? He tells us in Exodus what he's like. Exodus 34, he says this about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. That is what the Lord is like. That is the Lord that we should delight in. And later on in the Bible, God gives a prophecy through Jeremiah that he will put that law of God on the hearts of his people. And he made a covenant that, will, uh, that, we, will be, uh, that we will be able to follow that, that law through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when David exhorts us to trust in the Lord, that means for us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to cast ourselves on him for mercy and salvation. And that should be the greatest delight of our souls. 
And when you delight in the Lord, then the most normal thing in the, law, in, in the world is to want to obey Him. Uh, to honor Him in everything you do. So the Lord Jesus changes our desires so that whatever He desires, I desire. Whatever uh, He loves, you love. And whatever He enjoys, you enjoy. So now do you see it? It's not just a proverb, this verse 4. The Lord really will give you the desires of your heart if you delight in the Lord. This is what Matthew Henry says. He's not promised to gratify all the appetites of the body, but to grant all the desires of the heart, all the cravings of the renewed, sanctified soul. What is the desire of a heart of a good man? It is this, to know and love and live to God to please him and be pleased in him. So now, do you get it? How can you get everything you want in 2023? By taking delight in the Lord. May the Lord Jesus so captivate our hearts that we delight in him and may the Lord give you the desires of your heart also.